You're listening to EduRevolution, a podcast that inspires educators to make meaningful change. My name is Michael R. McCormick, and I'm a school district superintendent best known as a technology enthusiast who is dedicated to increasing opportunity and access for each student. I'm sitting down with the movers and shakers who are making waves in the education space through research, practice, and technology integration. Buckle up and be inspired to make changes in your school or district and join the Edu Revolution movement. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Well, hello, this is Michael McCormick, and I am your host for the Edu Revolution podcast. And today I am super excited. We have one new guest and one returning guest, and I'm going to start with Susie Boss, who is a new guest. She's a writer, educational consultant from Portland, Oregon, working to harness the power of teaching, learning, and storytelling to improve lives and transform communities. Recent projects have taken her across the United States and around the globe to support schools that are shifting away from traditional instruction and engaging students in real-world problem solving. She's had the privilege of collaborating with educators everywhere from India to Europe to South America, and she is a PBL Works National Faculty Emeritus and longtime contributor to Edutopia. So Susie, welcome to the episode. How are you? I'm well, and thank you so much for the invitation to join you today. I'm very excited to be here with you and uh, to learn more about the great work your district is doing as well. Oh, thanks so much, Susie. And second, our returning guests. So we want to welcome Ken Kay, and Ken has worked for almost two decades as an educational provocateur, promoting a model of K-12 education for the 21st century. Most recently, he served as the CEO of EdLeader21, a professional learning community of more than 200 school districts around the United States. Prior to his work with EdLeader21, Ken was one of the founding presidents, or he was the founding president of the Partnership for 21st Century Skills and executive director of the CEO Forum on Education and Technology. Ken, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you again, Mike. Yeah, so... I am so pleased because you two are co-authors of a, of a brand new book that's going to be released here very shortly entitled Redefining Student Success, Building a New Vision to Transform Leading, Teaching, and Learning. And so I want to say congratulations to you two. This is going to get a lot of attention. It's got a foreword from Tony Wagner. And the publisher on this is Corwin, and I'm sure it'll be available wherever you purchase your books. But Ken and Susie, one of the things that um, I was very interested to learn about is that you went and had something like 200 conversations with school system leaders before you ever put pen to paper or finger to keyboard. So one of you kind of talk about how that felt and, and what was that like for you? Well, it was, a, it was a great experience. This was actually, the amazing thing about it was in the heat of COVID. So this was June, July, and August of uh, 2020. And we really spent a solid three months interviewing 250 people about 50 superintendents, and then people who they commended us to about the topics we wanted to uh, go into in more depth. Um, And the amazing experience was when we decided to write the book the year before, COVID wasn't on the screen, and now all of these educators were not only talking to us about 
topics that we were interested in, but they were doing it through the COVID lens, uh, which was fascinating. So it was a it was a great experience and was a way of making sure that the book was rooted um, into uh, people's current perspectives. Now, the one thing we should say is most of the people we talked to um, were bold visionary leaders who were on the path of 21st century learning. Um, and we were trying to learn from them uh, stories and examples of things that they found powerful on that journey. Right. So, Susie, what, what are your perspectives on our, sure. on our incredible interview Yes, yeah, so we were very busy. And, and, and I, I'll tell you that, um, I mean, Ken and I did most of these conversations. He'd take some, I would take some, but we would often have quick phone calls where one of us had just had the kind of conversation that gives you goosebumps because we were so excited by, you know, what we were hearing about a student project or a school system that was really empowering its teachers to do amazing things. And, And so there was a lot of excitement, even though we were in the middle of this pandemic and schools had been just thrown for a loop on, you know, how do we serve students well with Uh, remote or blended learning and all these equity challenges that the pandemic brought up for communities to have to wrestle with. Even amid all of that challenge, there was so much optimism and good work happening um, that we, we came out of this, I think, feeling really optimistic about where education is and where it's heading. No, I love that. And, and, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that we were so grateful for is, you know, and I've talked about this, kind of those investments in professional development and infrastructure in providing one-to-one take-home devices for students. And I think for those districts that were kind of on this path, uh, it was it was a proof of concept, like, wow, this really can work. And in some cases, you know, we 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 were testing the waters on some of this stuff and maybe you know, these initiatives were happening on the fringes of the organization, and now it was an opportunity to kind of fold the edges into the core because we were left without a choice. And so, you know, like you, I, I've had conversations with different system leaders around, and it's 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 a fascinating perspective to hear how their transition into emergency distance learning went. And did they feel that there was a readiness for that, not only, you know, internally in terms of staff capacity, but also a willingness amongst community members to make that transition? Uh, So it sounds to me like you and Ken probably got off the phone and called each other and went, oh, my God, I've got goosebumps. That was an amazing conversation. And I can see that. Yeah, (laughs) I, I, I can see that just kind of going, you know, back and forth in that in that way. And kind of generally speaking, one one of the things that I've talked about in the edgy revolution movement is that we've got to broaden our perspective of what student success looks like. Um, I've said this before, but it kind of reminds me of my favorite Sir Ken Robinson quote was, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, once kids get good at one thing, they tend to get better at everything else. And what happens in a situation if we're not assessing a particular skill that the kid is really good or passionate about? And it seems to me like that's really at the heart of of this new book, Redefining Student Success. So would you kind of kind of am I on target or if I or am I way off track here? 
Well, I, I would say, no, no, I, I think you're on target. Um, it, there are, what, what COVID has done, let me go back one step because we had such a good conversation. COVID's done two things. It's tested culture. And a lot of the conversations we did have made it really clear that those folks that had a culture that supported innovation and experimentation were coming through COVID better than those cultures that weren't supporting innovation and experimentation and adaptation. So that was one clear message of, of the interviews. The other is, is that the age old and uh, uh, objectives of education, uh, the, the three R's and uh, uh, memorization and compliance were really hit up, hit, hit up, slammed against the wall when kids all of a sudden demonstrated how uh, boring and non-inspiring those were particularly in an online environment uh, when they were at home and they and they weren't being challenged and they weren't being um, uh, inspired. And so the redefinition of student success is really um, a conversation about can we afford to keep this system of education trained on 50, 100-year-old objectives that don't connect with our kids um, when we're at a moment where we need deeply to engage our kids in education and we need to have them uh, not be compliant memorizers, but, but to be creative problem solvers. And so the shift between test taking, compliance, and memorization to self-directed creative problem solving is the shift that we envision in the redefinition of student success. Yeah, and I think if, if this this moment, this pandemic we've all lived through, has erased any doubt that we have to prepare students for being flexible, agile, able to work together to solve challenges that nobody expected or had even heard of, you know, a month before. I mean, our, our students are seeing adults around the world scrambling to solve a big, open-ended, challenging problem that dropped, you know, dropped <laughs> in their laps, that dropped in the world's lap. Um, and so the, all the things we've been talking about for two decades in terms of 21st century skills and preparing students for an uncertain future, the world of information at our fingertips, how do we solve, um, you know, open-ended challenges. Uh, our kids are, are living through that and they're seeing adults grappling with how to do that, uh, the need for all of the competencies that, you know, we've been uh, talking about for a long time, but don't necessarily come to life in our students' educational experience. So I think there's a, a more urgency than we've ever, ever felt before to get busy with this business, not just of redefining student success, but then aligning the whole system so that we close those readiness gaps and we get all of our students on this path to be ready for whatever the, the next challenge is going to be ahead of all of us. I was talking to my oldest uh, son today and he happened to do, he's a creativity expert, and he happened to do a workshop uh, for 90 kids and 90 faculty at a high school in uh, Tennessee yesterday. 
And he said to me that he asked the question of the 90 juniors and seniors, you know, how have the adults done during COVID? How have the adults coped with change and innovation and experimentation? And they all gave the thumbs down. <laughs> Sad. All gave the thumbs down. And so um, the redefinition of student success is that adults, adults need, and students need to be able to demonstrate adaptability, flexibility, and the ability to creatively solve problems. That's what Susie's really saying. And I think that the students inherently know that. And the circumstances now are underscoring it uh, in a way that, um, you know, I might, I know, Mike, you've said that COVID is actually a moment in, uh, that actually cries out uh, for these competencies. And that's why I think we're thinking that the redefinition of student success is exactly the conversation that leaders and communities ought to be having right now because they can hold that conversation up to the reality of what education needs to be and the reality of what education has been the last 24 months. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Hearing that experience about, about your son, especially, you know, today, one of the things that I've talked about is that, you know, COVID has been an exercise in the four C's for adults. And according to the students that your son was with today, the result was a thumbs down. And so how do we kind of break the chains that, you know, there are two uh, authors out of Harvard that talked about Tayak and Cuban. And um, they talk about, uh, the title of their book was Tinkering Towards Utopia. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how the grammar of schooling is such a powerful chain that binds us to everybody's experience with education, which is extremely traditional in format. And I think these guys got it right. You know, we think about all of these uh, initiatives to transform education, and they've really had kind of a, a little bit of impact, not, not certainly not the promise of impact that we would all hope for. And I know that Ken, you've been at this a while. Susie, you've been at this a while. Uh, this is my 30th year in education. And um, I kind of look at this and I'm thinking to myself, gosh, have we really made the kind of progress that we would have hoped? And in some ways, I can say, yeah, you know, we talked about some of the school systems where their transition into emergency distance learning was smoother than others. And I think there are certainly some bright spots there. But when we think about that work at scale, um, can we continue allowing ourselves to tinker or make incremental progress? Or is this the time for bold and courageous leadership? What are you guys' thoughts on that? I, you know, Susie, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> I think <laughs> you're, you're teeing us up nicely here for, I think, one of our key messages is that, you know, for, for different reasons, Ken and I are both big believers that now is the time, uh, the urgency of now for bold leadership. And from my perspective, I see it because I've worked with um, 
primarily with teachers who are wanting to shift their instruction toward project-based learning, toward more student-centered learning, uh, wanting to do more innovative things with their students. And in all kinds of different contexts, as you mentioned, I've worked around, all around the globe. And, and I see again and again places where teachers can get off to a great start, but if they don't have the leader's enduring support uh, you know, when the first parent says, hey, why are my kids doing this project instead of what I expect them to be doing? Where's where's the traditional homework? Why do grades look different? You know, if they have leaders who, who draw back support just when they're getting up to steam with some new and innovative ways to work with their students, um, things fall flat. And I think we've seen these pockets of innovation, but we haven't seen the scale that we know is necessary to reach every single student. So I come at it from the perspective of, you know, teachers in the field who know that they need to have their leader with them on board in this work together. And when that's the case, you know, all kinds of wonderful wonderful things happen. I mean, we can talk, uh, Mike, about some of the folks in your own district who, um, you know, raved about their ability to be forward thinking and to be innovative. But um, first, I'm going to turn it over to Ken, who comes at this from a different perspective. Yeah, I, you know, I've been working with uh, superintendents and other district leaders around the country on this work now for almost 20 years. And what I, one of the reasons that I approached Susie about writing the book is that I noticed that when we were focused on the four C's, critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity, that what a lot of districts started doing is saying, well, we'll just take those and we'll just embed those or shoehorn those into, into curriculum standards. So if we just get a little bit more curricula, a, a little more collaboration uh, in, in science, or we get a little more communication in math, or we get a little more, you know, you get the idea. And I felt that approach is too incremental and too slow. And what it does is it keeps the silos of, of, uh, of subjects uh, autonomous. It allows you to continue to operate in the content silos. What we advocate in the book and what we think is that one of the big, bold breakthroughs is you really need to create creative problem solving around the, the, the challenges that young people are interested in. They're interested in uh, sustainability. They're interested in civic engagement. Those aren't siloed topics. Those, in fact, quite the opposite. They marry communications and science and fact-finding with advocacy and communications. They're all inter interdisciplinary. And so one of the reasons the book takes such a hard stand in favor of creative problem solving is we think educators um, now need to really uh, challenge themselves to ask the simple question. It's not enough to say, is there some collaboration in our science standard? That's not good enough. The question is, are your kids every day, every week, every semester working on honing their creative problem solving skills? And we boldly predict that in 10 years, uh, 30 to 50 percent of student time will be spent on creative problem solving. And that is a much bolder uh, challenge to the education community than just saying, do you have enough collaboration in your in your science standards? Um, that that's a bolder approach and and not uh, a simple shoehorning incremental approach. 
I could not agree more. And I think it takes leadership in all levels of the organization. It takes teacher leadership. It takes building level leadership. It takes district level leadership. And ideally, that is supported at the policy level to make the changes that are necessary. And I think I would agree with you that, you know, a global pandemic is a wonderful time to strike. And I say that because the system of education is currently unseated in terms of accountability structures, assessment structures, because we're coming out of this time where we were provided, at least in my state, we were provided flexibilities around some of those traditional accountability systems. So I think this is absolutely the time to strike. I never thought I would say that in my educational career, that we would have this global pandemic, um, you know, that can be used, I believe, as a force multiplier. And I will tell you, we were one of the first school districts in the nation to be recognized as a Google reference district. And as a result of that, we've developed a partnership and pre-pandemic, we were taking students, parents, teachers, administrators, counselors, on one-day trips to Mountain View to visit Google's headquarters. And um, one of the things that they said time and time and time again is we need self-directed, creative problem solvers. That is the type of skill and disposition that we need more than anything else because we can teach a lot of the other pieces, but we need to have people who can work together in teams and solve problems creatively because if we just, you know, as a, as a true, what I would say, you know, pretty good example of a 21st century work environment, what they expect is not a normal level of critical thinking and problem solving because there is no competitive advantage in that. What they're looking for is the creative problem solvers who can apply a new solution in a, you know, in, a, in kind of a novel way, so to speak. And that's what gives them as a company the competitive advantage over, say, other companies in their, in their same workspace. And so I'll just kind of wrap up that little section by saying when our students from Valverde got to fly up to San Jose and go to Google and, and our parents got to see that. And that was something that, you know, it goes, it's kind of back to the old adage. Sometimes you got to see it to believe it and have that kind of being their experience. And so as we did that over several years, that was one of the things that really came, kind of made our portrait of a graduate come to life, uh, come to life, not only for our students, but our parents and our community and our business community. And um, I know you spend some time talking about the power of the portrait of a graduate in the book, Redefining Student Success. And I want to say that, that that is a great process to actually unify your community. So if you're a building level leader out there or a, a, a school system leader out there and you would like to take your internal and external stakeholders and your entire community through a process that can really unify them around what it is they want to see the graduates um, have in their tool set 
by the time they leave the system. And so, Ken or Susie, uh, you want to talk about maybe how the book lays out this building of a portrait of graduate and the power that you see is that as a tool, uh, that, you know, for for building and school system leaders to consider. Well, we we really anchor the book in the portrait of a graduate and in anchor the portrait of a graduate in community-based conversation. And I think that what we found in talking to leaders is that this new conversation about redefining student success can't be just a conversation between the superintendent and, and his or her own educators. It actually, in order to have longevity, it has to be a conversation between the superintendent, the school board, and the community. And the goal here is to create a portrait of a graduate that actually will long outlive an individual superintendent. This is not intended to be, uh, you know, the one th uh, related to a person. It's supposed to be the community's view of where um, its system is headed. And so we lay out in great detail in the book all the varying constituencies that need to be brought to the table and make the point also, which I think is very important, that the moment of the portrait of a graduate um, is also the moment for a conversation about equity. Because if you don't address equity at the inception of the portrait of a graduate process, you'll be building all of the inequities of the old system into your portrait. And what you really want to ask is not just do, what competencies do we want every student to have, but what are we prepared to do to make sure that every student has them? And that I, I, you know, I've facilitated some of these conversations and that question is, are we prepared to do what it takes to make sure that every student has access to these competencies? And I'll, I'll, let me, let me, Susan can, Susie can talk, take it from there. Well, uh, right. And, and, you know, when Ken talks about community, we really lean hard on being as inclusive as possible. So who are the stakeholders who don't usually have a voice and what has kept them from participating in conversations, um, you know, with your school system? And how do you get those barriers out of the way and make sure that those voices are, are included, that everybody really needs to be at the table. That's how you get a vision that's going to have the kind of staying power um, Ken's talking about. And, you know, we've heard from districts in, in rural communities, um, some districts with a lot of um, Spanish speakers. So they've done tons of outreach in the community, outside of the campus, you know, so that it's in uh, a place that's accessible. They get transportation barriers out of the way. They provide translation. They might need to have 100 conversations in their community. In other places, um, technology tools are enabling people to um, exchange ideas online uh, with others in the community. So there's lots of ways that different school systems are going about bringing all those voices in. But as Ken was saying, this is, you know, this becomes a really powerful tool, not just for pulling together that conversation, but then planning everything from that North Star, thinking about your instruction, thinking about your assessment, thinking about your professional learning, all of it now needs to align with the vision that your community uh, has endorsed and embraced and has really become, um, you know, this is what we're about as a community and, and we're all in for our students. 
So it, this is an, an, a moment where we probably should bring in the notion of bold and courageous leadership, because the way we're describing it, it sounds like, oh, you just do this. But the reality is that this notion of emphasizing creative problem solving and uh, civic engagement, these are tough issues for communities. And, and also your teachers and your community are going to test you, which is, well, the state's requiring all these standard 50-year-old content standards for us to meet. How are you going to square the state standards and state policy with this local consensus that we need creative problem solvers? That's where the leader comes in. That's where bold, courageous backbone comes in. And we have a lot of great stories in the book about superintendents who stepped up and said to their teachers, it's clear the community wants creative problem solvers, and I got your back. Uh, the board and I will take care of standardized tests and the other requirements that we still have to make, but we want you to start this journey because our kids need it and our community wants it. And it's the superintendent's willingness or the other, the leadership team's willingness to provide that backbone, to provide that cover for, for innovative educators that becomes critical in this process. So we don't want to um, leave with the impression that this is easy leadership. This is bold and courageous and difficult leadership, but that's what it takes actually to make the transition from traditional education to this uh, actually very compelling, inspiring notion of what 21st century education should be about. Right. And I can add one more story there. As Ken said, there are dozens of them um, in the book, but we heard from uh, Mike Duncan, who's a long-term superintendent in uh, Pike County, Georgia. Um, and he had one of those light bulb moments uh, where he realized because he was having a conversation with an exchange student who had spent a year in the district and was getting ready to head back home to Europe. And, you know, he asked her what was different from your year here to, you know, what it was like in Germany where you're from. How how are, how are our school systems different? And she just gave him this answer that changed everything uh, in his way of thinking. She said, you know, um, back home, we learn things so that then we can apply them to solve problems. Here they give you all the answers and you just have to remember them. And he thought, oh my gosh, and, you know, here I've been spending all this uh, intellectual uh, capacity of my entire staff on driving up our achievement scores, improving our graduation rate. We've been kind of chasing the wrong dream here. Um, and he went to his community members, his parents and his students and his, um, his teachers and said, you know, checked his assumption that, you know, do we really need to rethink where we're going? And when they came to consensus that we want our students to be creative problem solvers, we want them prepared for the challenges ahead. Then he went to each teacher individually and said, listen, we're going to give this a go. We're going to support you with all the professional learning you need. We're going to create a system where you've got extra release time uh, to devote to professional development. Uh, you're going to be empowered to do that with your colleagues. And if our test scores go down, um, don't worry about it. That's on me. I've got your back. He had that conversation with every single teacher so that they would really take him at his word that, you know, we want to do something different. And the goal there was more authentic learning. That's what students, parents, teachers, everybody in the community wanted. And that's what they've been working on ever since. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. And I, and I know him, and uh, we've had the opportunity to collaborate with one another. And I think the, you know, the portrait of graduate really serves as a North Star for the district. 
And um, I, I, I want to say that, you know, it is about bold and courageous leadership for, for absolutely 100% for certain. And I think it's also about liberating your teachers mm-hmm. so that they feel free that they do not have to cover every single standard and to give teachers time. You know, I always say that those closest to the work should be leading the work. If you liberate your teachers and empower your teachers, they will do amazing things because I think in their heart of hearts, they want the same thing for the students. And by the way, this is an opportunity for them to get excited about doing something new and different and worthwhile that will ultimately prepare their students for the future. I think my director of STEAM says it best when he talks to our business partners. Look, I've got 20,000 of your future workers sitting in my system right now. What is is it that you want them to arrive uh, at your company with in terms of skills and dispositions and knowledge and mindset? And what a great way to start a conversation. Talk about getting your business partner's attention, because I don't know if they necessarily think about it like this, that we, we have the future workers sitting in our system right now. And um, I, I love what you're talking about. And Susie, I want to come back to you, because I think that, you know, we've talked about portrait of a graduate. We've talked about the concept of self-directed creative problem solving and the power of that. And this is a time for bold and courageous leadership. We've also talked about um, this, this idea that the portrait can be very unifying for the entire community. But let's get right down to where the rubber meets the road. And mm-hmm. that's human teachers with human students. What does this look like at the classroom level? Right. Um, you know, so if you've got your, you know, you've got your portrait of a graduate, you've got your North Star, then I think teachers need to have that conversation with each other about what does this look like in our classroom at our grade level with our students. And students can be part of that conversation as well. Um, and, you know, you start to create this um, uh building, you know, the building blocks, you know, if we're starting with our primary students, what do they need to know and be able to do as creative problem solvers? What does that look like if they've had that experience, then they move into the upper, you know, elementary grades, what are they ready for at that point? So developmentally, you're thinking about what are kids, you know, of the ages that I'm teaching, what are they capable of? How can we kind of stretch their competencies in new ways? And then as we get them ready to be really curious, interested problem solvers who ask great questions and recognize problems. How do we support their learning and keep that going forward? We, we talked with an elementary district out in California, Encinitas, California, um, where they, they turn to their students consistently to identify what needs work in our school or in our community. What's an interesting problem that we need to solve? Um, and how can we connect that to what you're doing in your classes? So kids recognize what might seem like um, maybe not that all that interesting a problem. They see some runoff water and they get really interested in stormwater drainage. That connects them with their city environmental services department. That connects them with their water bureau and water testing. Um, before long, they're, they're um, testifying before state boards in Sacramento about how to improve uh, stormwater systems for schools. I mean, they're making remarkable 
changes in their community and in their environment because they've got that uh, time and space to recognize problems, identify, you know, they, they've learned a process for problem solving, for identifying a worthy problem, how to ask questions, how to find people to help you, how to find allies and, and take your thinking further. Teachers understand the same protocols for, for problem solving. You know, they've really worked on that and created a whole systemic structure that supports that. And so you can imagine by the time kids are leaving that system, I think they tap out at a around sixth grade, um, they're pretty confident um, problem solvers who are ready to go on into the next level of schooling, uh, you know, just full of, of creativity and uh, content knowledge that they've learned through these big investigations that they've done. So I think it, look, it, it looks different at different grade levels, but you've got to have all your teachers kind of moving together, thinking about as our students move through the system, how are we... Um, designing instruction so that we continually kind of deepen their knowledge and stretch their capacity and have that next goal always kind of out in front of them? And how are we rethinking our assessment systems so that we're really assessing what we're trying to aim for uh, when it comes to student learning? Those are some of the conversations we've been hearing about that, you know, from districts that are doing this hard work, you know, they're coming up with everything from sets of classroom look-fors. What do you want to look for in your classroom if you're designing for creative problem solving? Um, what sorts of assessment tools are really useful? How can you get students more involved in self-assessment and in student-led conferences? You know, all of those really practical, specific uh, strategies for teaching and learning um, are just blossoming in districts that are taking a hard look at their whole system and they're aligning everything that they're doing to their portrait of a graduate. So this may be false logic. Um, this just popped into my mind. So please, you know, feel free to push back on this. But I was, as you were describing Encinitas and what they were doing there, first of all, phenomenal example. I was reminded of Michael Fullen and him talking about why we shouldn't be leading with accountability. Mm -hmm. and, I was, and I was reflecting that I wonder if we should be leading with content. Uh, and my, my frame of reference for that is if we were leading with students interested in solving some sort of a problem, then the content becomes a means to an end rather than just learning specific content that is siloed across subject matter areas. But now we're using this braided content of math and science and writing and speaking and, you know, storytelling and advocacy. Uh, we're learning about all of these different subject matters in order to kind of solve this problem that the students care about. So where... Check my thinking on that. Does that make any sense? <laughs> you're, or? you're singing my song, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we talk about project-based learning, we talk about the rigor of projects. They aren't just for fun. They aren't fluffy. Um, you know, they're about serious academic goals. And we talk about students having a need to know, literally a need to know content in order to solve the problem that really interests them. So they're rich with content. Students not only, you know, learn deeply during the project, but they retain 
retain that knowledge and are able to apply it in future situations. So I think you're just, you're spot on in terms of thinking about um, the content lives through these really interesting problems and projects uh, that, that students are eager to tackle. Um, and, and their eagerness, you know, just is such a great um, counterweight to the lack of engagement that we know is a problem, especially as kids get older. And we don't so, want to, yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. No, I just said, you know, I was thinking as kids get older and more able and their brains are more developed, you know, we want them as engaged as possible in working on issues that their community is going to care about because they're of an age to, to really engage. But, you know, our data continues to reflect the lack of engagement as kids head toward high school. And you know, that's just a, a crisis in the making that we need to get busy solving. So, Mike, I think you're absolutely spot on. and. This idea, I think it's really what the, what the book is about, redefining student success potentially puts creative problem solving, self-directed creative problem solving at the center of the universe, at the center of our attention. Then the challenge is for leaders to say, how are we going to assure that every student, every semester has a significant creative problem to solve? And if you could see the kinds of issues the students um, took on in this book, um, taking on uh, the uh, reduction of pollution in a lake that had basically been outlawed because of its pollution, and the steps they took working with the city to test the lake and to come up with solutions and to work on an education program for citizens. Um, that's an and the amount of content you have to learn in order to make a presentation to the city council. Um, the science teachers had them develop basically scientific reports on the findings of their research around that lake. Um, but the question is, uh, is, when is every one of your students gonna have that type of opportunity every semester? And so we make a lot of suggestions in the book about what that looks like. And in every district, it may look a little different, but in, even in your district, the question is, how do we structure the, the semester or the school year so that kids have at least one very large creative problem to work on every semester? And it'll change. I mean, every kid we talked to about these projects said it was the thing they know they'll remember about their education 50 years from now. And it had um, a way of energizing them about content, about the skills they were developing in a way that nothing else does. So that, that's, I think, the challenge. And, and the, we hope that leaders who read this book will begin some reflection and some conversations, not just about what are the competencies we're going to have um, uh, uh, as challenges to our system, but what are the changes we're going to make to offer these kinds of challenges to our students you know, beginning in the upcoming uh, academic year. Yeah, one of the things that, um, you know, I kind of talk about in the Edge Revolution movement is to to be inspired by researchers and practitioners. And I think this has been a wonderful conversation about the book, Redefining Student Success, Building a New Vision to Transform Leading, Teaching, and Learning, and Inspiring School Site Building Leaders, uh, District Leaders, to say, hey, the time is now. We know there's a better way to do this work and to kind of marshal the resources within your district and liberate your teachers 
uh, and say, you know what, you have my permission. It is okay to do this work. And I will tell you just, and I don't know that I've ever told this story publicly, but in sixth grade, my sixth grade teacher, uh, we lived in Lake Tahoe, and there was no weather that was actually reported out of Lake Tahoe. All of our weather either came from Sacramento or Reno. And so my sixth grade teacher wrote to the National Weather Service. We had a National Weather Service station installed at my elementary school. And there was a group of us sixth grade students that would get up at like 530 in the morning, arrive at the school before everybody else, take all the recorded measurements of the, uh, from the weather station, sit down, write a weather report, and then we would call into the local radio station before 7 a.m. in the morning, and we were the Myers Junior Meteorologist. And we were the only, not just kids, we were the only weather reporting that was coming right out of our town at that time. And I've forgotten a tremendous amount that I learned in the sixth grade, but I've never forgotten about the meteorology lessons that I learned, the lessons that I learned in being so completely scared out of my mind to be on the telephone and, and to be broadcast, you know, throughout the region via this radio station and the friends that we made. And, and that, I just, I, I think it is, it is so absolutely true uh, what Ken and, and Susie, what both of you have said is these are the types of experiences that students will never forget. And we know what the neuroscience tells us about this, that the way we transfer information into long-term memory is because we have a passion for the information, there's an emotion connected to it, there's a physical, tangible experience in the way that our students are interacting with the information. And so, you know, you could say to the kids, well, do you want to do these uh, problems on this worksheet today? Or do you want to try and solve something that's going to make your community a better place? And I think that's a foregone conclusion, right? So uh, before we move on to the last little section, any thoughts on, on that uh, kind of story I shared? Either Oh, it's phenomenal. And I, I think this is what we want every student to experience. You know, it doesn't mean every student has to be a weather reporter, but every student needs an experience, uh, many experiences, ideally, but that's going to stick with them. You know, we want we want those memorable, meaningful uh, experiences that I often describe as hard fun. You know, nothing about what you were doing was easy, um, but it was clearly enjoyable and it, it clearly stuck with you for the long term. So that's what we want for all of our students. So, Mike, before we go to the last part, you have brought up uh, several times over the course of the conversation. Um, how do you nurture this culture of experimentation and innovation? And I want to harken back to the beginning of the conversation when we talked about the 200 interviews and what we found in making the interviews. We didn't make this term up. We found it in our notes from the interviews is that when we asked teachers, how do you know that you could do a project like this? They said, our principal gave us the green light or I knew my principal would give us the green light or if we asked the principal, how do you have 206 grade sixth graders working on a problem of trying to save the town lake. How did you know that you could take that on? And she said, my superintendent gave me the green light. And so we have this notion in the book of a green light culture about 
how principals, superintendents, and teachers all need to work together to support innovation and experimentation and give each other the green light and have their back when they when they take the green light. <laughs> and um, it's been a concept that in our early conversations with folks about the book that people have really enjoyed. And so I wanted to, I, I, I wanted to share that, uh, that piece with you. Um, but look, I love your story. And, um, um, and I, I think we all have stories like that, but we always use them as, as, as lovely, uh, sepia reminiscences, reminiscences of education, rather than understanding that where we're headed is having those stories at the core of education. And, um, that's what that's what redefining student success needs to be about is put those kinds of experiences at the very center of what education should be striving for. Yeah, I love that. And that's and that's the concept that we we talk about is, look, it, there's a lot of school systems out there where this stuff that we're talking about is happening on the fridge the fringes of the organization. And what we're talking about here and you can read. I think lots of green light examples as we're talking about what's happening on the fringes of the organization and folding that into the core. And particularly if you're a high school teacher or principal or assistant principal or counselor, think about the experiences that your students are having in their elective classes, in their co-curricular activities, because oftentimes these are exactly the types of experiences students are having there but how do we take what's happening in the extracurricular and co-curricular activities on a high school campus and fold those into the core and give more students that type of an educational experience where they will be passionate about their learning and never forget those key concepts and experiences that they learned along the way. Now, that's the kind of stuff that gets me excited. You know, I shared I my, my own kind of personal experience, but I can tell you there's been lots of times in Valverde in my own school district where people have come to me and I've said, you have the green light. I will support you. And as a result, we've had some amazing experiences for our students, whether it was our solar energy or our aquaponics. We've got a thousand vine vineyard that we're working on. We've got a new animatronics space that's in one of our elementary schools. But here's the key. Every one of our schools has a makerspace, a steam lab all the way through the K-12 system. Every one of our schools has gardens. We have schools where uh, the kids are learning how to grow the vegetables, which are served on our salad bars. We have kids that are measuring the amount of energy that we're generating. And thank you, too, for putting some of that in the book. I'm, I'm grateful for those experiences. But this is the kind of stuff. Look, our kids deserve this because education is no longer about preparing students for working in an industrial economy and factory work. Uh, we are in a new time where this is all about knowledge work. And, um, you know, as Ken's son shared recently, uh, in terms of, you know, the global pandemic and an exercise in the four C's for the adults, um, the jury is out. Wouldn't you say in terms of how we've interacted with one another? Mm -hmm. But I think at this point, you know, Susie, I would love to know as we conclude today, what is on your gratitude list? 
Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, it's a good list. And I'll share two things, if that's okay. One is I'm just grateful to Ken for inviting me into this project with him. Um, he approached me about collaborating. We had some chats back and forth, and it's just been a fantastic uh, collaboration. So I love that. And the other is more personal, you know, having had some family health history in the um, not so distant past, things are looking very good. And um, we're all moving toward the future with a lot of energy. So that that lifts me up every day. That is wonderful. It's about self-care, right? We were talking about that the other day. And I think, you know, self-care and just general wellness is something that we should be grateful for because we certainly notice it when we don't have it. Ken, how about you? Well, I, I, you know, I, I want to thank Susie for the collaboration as well. There's just so much <laughs> gratitude. We've been working on this book, uh, you know, in earnest since last June one and uh, over a year, and it's been a wonderful collaboration. And now that we're beginning to talk about it publicly, it's 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 even more fun. So um, I'm very very grateful that she agreed to be, uh, you know, part of this. Uh, part of this journey. Um, I'm gratitude. You know, every time I think about education, I think about the courageous leaders that I've worked with, and uh, and Mike, you're one of them. But I'm grateful for uh, the 45 superintendents that spoke to us, um, not because they spoke to us, but because they are leading uh, the work um, in this field. And um, we have in the book, but in the nation, we have wonderful examples of communities that are really leading the way to reinvent education. And I'm so grateful that they uh, had the courage to do this work um, and that they're prepared to be shining examples of the work. And what leaves me the most hopeful about the future of education is we have hundreds of leaders around uh, the country, education leaders around the country, who are doing transformative, innovative work in our districts, and they are going to be the traction. They are going to be uh, the inspiration that moves the rest of us along. And 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 in my education work, uh, that's where my gratitude lies. It's with them and their great leadership. That is fantastic. I actually love that. And thanks to both of you. You know, I would encourage you uh, if you're listening to listening in today. You know, take a look at redefining student success, building a new vision for uh, to transform leading, teaching, and learning. It's by authors Ken Kay and Susie Boss, with a foreword by Tony Wagner. It's going to be out very shortly. And um, not only is there that vision there, but we also have some really uh, concrete examples of how to move this work forward. And I think the layout of the book that I've seen is very user-friendly. Uh, it's the kind of book that you can go to a certain area, find what you need, do that deep dive with you and your staff, and then look for other sections of the book. I think it's really meant to be not necessarily read from you know page one to the end, but to kind of jump around. And I hope I'm not saying anything that I shouldn't. Oh. That'll be fine. We love jumper around. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, fantastic. Well, uh, I'm grateful to both of you. Thanks for investing your, uh, some of your time with me today. And uh, let's stay in touch. Thanks for Thank joining you. me on this episode. Thank you Thanks. so much for your great questions and the conversation and the wonderful work that you're doing in Valverde. Absolutely. Mike, thanks for your leadership and thanks for your friendship. 
Thank you for listening today. I hope you feel inspired to be the change our students need. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can connect with me on Twitter at Mike underscore McCormick2 and Instagram at Michael R. McCormick. And hop on over to the edurevolutionpodcast.com website for free resources that support your next change initiative.